originally scheduled for this week, Thursday, has been postponed. But uh, you'll get more uh, more details. So we will have it next uh, next month, but it's been postponed. And I'd like to say something. In the uh, biblical division, the biblical studies division, we have been working, and I've talked to you about this before some, and to several of you individually, to put together a program by which uh, students here at the Master's College could study for a semester in Israel and integrate that into their program. Now, we're working with two different programs. They're similar but distinct, and I think they both offer uh, remarkable advantages, and I'm glad that we have both of them. One of them is uh, an a organization, an organization which seeks to place uh, students, Christian students, on a kibbutz in Israel to study there and work and, uh, and again, earn credit that you can transfer back into your biblical studies program here. We had two students there last uh, semester, Tim Arsenault and uh, Stephanie Walker. Stephanie's back this semester, and so she can tell you something about it. I say all that just to make this announcement that the man who represents that program will be on campus the next couple of days. His name is Dr. Joel Kettering. He was with us last year for a brief time, and he'll be set up over in the student uh, center there. And if you're at all interested uh, in Israel or in evangelism there, or in the prospects of even spending some time over there yourself, spending a semester over there yourself, uh, why don't you make it a point to, to drop in and see them? All right, well, to the uh, matter at hand, I would like to uh, take the time that is mine this morning to deal with a, um, with a subject which is much discussed and it's very central to all that the Bible is about. I, I think sometimes that it's uh, only uh, haltingly understood in large part and that subject is the glory of God. I'd like us to think this morning about the glory of God and ask ourselves a couple of questions that I think are, as I say, central to all that you and I claim to be about as believers. The first question is, what is the glory of God? What are we talking about? What is the Scripture talking about when it talks about the glory of God? And in that regard, I'm going to, uh, if you don't mind, lecture for, uh, for a few minutes to you. I'm going to get a little heavy. But uh, I think it's terribly, terribly important that we get a biblical uh, perception of the glory of God. Take your Bible, if you will, and go to Isaiah 48, and verse 11, a familiar verse, and a verse to which we will return in a little bit. But Isaiah 48, and I'm going to take you to a number of verses here this morning, so if you will, I think it would be uh, helpful for you to have your scripture, uh, to have your Bibles and follow along with me as the lights come up here. Uh, Isaiah 48:11. I said there are a couple of questions I'd like to address. First of all, what is the glory of God? And then, very closely related, what does it mean to glorify God? What are we talking about when we talk about glorifying God as believers? Well, notice Isaiah 48:11, just as a sort of a uh, text to begin with. And by the way, this is in a fascinating context. I want to come back to this context in just a few minutes. But Isaiah 40 to 45 are some of the highest, some of the some of the most important. If you want to study pure theology, pro, theology proper, the person of God, Isaiah 40 to 45, as Isaiah contrasts God Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of heaven, Yahweh Elohim, with the pagan gods who who are, uh, you know, he has this long section where he makes fun of uh, a God who will, uh, uh, you know, a uh, a man who will go out early in the morning and, and chop down a tree and take part of that tree and, and, and make firewood and put it in the fire and then make a, you know, bake some bread and eat the bread. Then take another part of the tree and he'll make a god. He'll carve out a little god and he'll bow down to that god. And maybe as he takes that god home on the back of his cart, you know, you a little rut and the god will fall off and he has to go back there and pick his god up and put it on the cart. And what kind of god is that to worship? And in contrast to that, those gods who have no eyes to see and have no ears to hear and have no hands to reach out and help and have no feet to come to your assistance. In contrast to all that, there is this God of heaven who actually does things, who actually can minister on your behalf. And that's the whole point. And, and uh, as I say, uh, in this particular context, what Isaiah is looking to is the fact that this God of heaven who can actually do things and who is distinct and to be honored and to be given glory because he is a God who can do things, who can minister on your behalf, that God is going to show himself mighty in allowing Israel to return from exile, from Babylon. Now, we'll come back to that, but look at Isaiah 48, and in this context, verse 11, he says that the reason, ultimately, that he is going to cause Israel to return from those 70 years in Babylon, that exile in Babylon, 
is for his own glory. And he says something about that. Isaiah 48 and verse 11, he says, for my own sake. And by the way, I'm reading out of the King James. Like I told class the other day, some of you undoubtedly came this morning with unauthorized versions, but I have the authorized But at any rate, I'm still stuck in the King James. You'll forgive me. Lost in the 50s tonight. That's my theme song. You know, but at any rate, uh, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Isaiah 48:11. he says, For mine own sake, even for mine own sake, will I do it. Or how should my name be polluted? That is, and we'll come back to this, if, if Israel is allowed to languish in uh, Babylon, and I will not give my glory unto another. God says that he so arranges this little slice of human history so that he might be glorified. He will not allow his name to be polluted. He will not give his glory to another. What's he talking about here? And I'd like to just give you a very simple outline here. Number one, I'd like to talk about the the definition of God's glory. What is God's glory? What does it mean? I'm going to give you a little uh, heavy stuff here, like I say. the, the, The concept of glory is clearly based on an Old Testament concept. An Old Testament idea. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew word for glory is kaved or kavod, C-H-A-B-O-D. By the way, that comes to us in that form almost once in the Old Testament. You remember where that is? What's that called to your mind? C-H-A-B-O-D. Ichabod, Ichabod, uh, which is ichabod, which means no glory or the glory is departed. You can remember that word kavod, but actually, interestingly enough, the word kavod actually means heavy, weighty. It's used literally only twice in the Old Testament. Kavod is used of Eli. Remember Eli, the wicked high priest? And the Bible says he was 98 years of age and and, and very heavy, very kavod. And when the news of his son's death and of the capture of the ark came to him, he pitched over backwards and broke his neck and died. Uh, he was heavy. He was kavod. And then it's used of Absalom's hair. Remember, Absalom had this uh, rather full head of hair. It was heavy upon him, Second Samuel says. But generally, kavod is used in a, in a figurative sense. It's used of body parts. For instance, uh, again and again, when the Bible says, the King James, for instance, when your Bible says, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, it actually, it, the, the Hebrew word is heavy. When Moses said in Exodus 4 at the burning bush, when he, when he uh, insisted that he wasn't qualified to do God's bidding, you remember he said, I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And again, the word slow there is heavy, kavod, I have a heavy tongue. Uh, it's used figuratively. It means that which is, uh, well, that which is heavy. I don't know what else to say. But uh, the point is that, uh, you know, it, it, it's just that uh, he, is, he is insisting he's unable to speak well. Um, Isaiah is, is told in uh, Isaiah 6. Uh, that rather uh, unhappy commission that's given to him, that he is to go and to make the heart of this people fat and their ears heavy of old. But, uh, and, and again, the, the word is, is used again and again figuratively, but what I want you to see is that, and, and you have to understand something about the way the Hebrew mind works. The Hebrew mind, as far as I'm concerned, is incapable of abstraction. And so when, 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 it tries, when the Hebrew tries to express that which is to us more or less abstract, it will usually use some sort of a concrete concept. Well, the word kavod came to mean, because it meant weighty or heavy, it came to mean that which has weight or significance, that which has meaning or some special distinction, that which is weighty or significant. And again and again, the Bible uses kavod to speak of importance or significance or weight or special dignity or, if you don't mind, glory. Glory or kavod is that which gives a person, that which manifests a person's special significance or weightiness. Uh, Abraham, in Genesis 13, the Bible says that Abraham was rich in cattle and in silver and in gold. The Hebrew word is kavod. He was weighty. He was significant. People knew that he was an important man, and he was set aside from the average fellow because he had all this wealth. And again and again, as I say in the Old Testament, there are references uh, uh, to, there are places where this word kavod is used of a person's special significance. Joseph, in Genesis 45, sent his brothers. After Joseph had revealed his identity to his brothers, he sent them back and he said, Now you tell Jacob of all my kavod here in Egypt. 
all my weightiness, my significance. And again, in, uh, in Exodus 28, as you have the description of the priestly garments, several times it will say this priest, the high priest, is to have a special garment which is different from anybody else's garments. It sets him aside, and it says you make this garment for his kavod, for his glory, to set him aside from all others. So, kavod has the idea of weight, heavy, but it comes to mean significant. And so when we talk about the glory of God, we are talking about that which manifests his special character, his special significance. And might I go the next step, I'm going to come to this later, but then when, it mean, when, we, when we speak of glorifying God, we simply mean that we live in such a way as to enhance God's significance in the minds of others. Men have a higher regard for your God than they could have or would have had they never met you if you live in such a way as to glorify God. That's what it is. Uh, in the Old Testament, again, one of the points, the, the term that is the, the, the uh, use to which the word kavod is most often put has to do with that marvelous cloud which we call the Shekinah. Forty-five times in the Old Testament, it's explicitly referred to as the kavod, the glory cloud. Now, think about that. Uh, matter of fact, take your Bible and go to Exodus 33. As you do, let me just uh, review for you very briefly the history of that glory cloud. It's a marvelous thing. The, uh, the Hebrews, I'm sorry, the rabbis, by the way, took to calling that glory cloud the Shekinah, which means the dwelling and uh, we have picked up on that term, the Shekinah cloud. I don't like it, and I try to eschew it, because what the uh, rabbis mean by that is something very, very different from what you and I understand. The rabbis absolutely refuse the idea that God ever took upon himself any physical form, and so by Shekinah they mean some special non-material radiance. But apart from all that, I'm saying in the Old Testament, that the term that the Old Testament uses to speak of this, this cloud of witness, this marvelous cloud. And do you understand what this cloud was? This marvelous, huge pillar. There were not two clouds. Uh, when, when the cloud first appears in Exodus 13 and verse 20, it is described as a pillar of cloud by day and a clear pillar of fire by night. And out of that, some people have deduced that there were two clouds. Uh, not so. I think there was but one cloud, but it was a cloud, it was a pillar of radiant fire, which was so radiant that you couldn't look upon it. It was, by the way, basically the same light which Paul saw on the road to Damascus, and which physically knocked him and the soldiers down. And, uh, but that light, because it was so uh, effulgent, because it was so marvelous, was enclouded, uh, was, is enveloped in a cloud, in a vapor. And so by day, you would see this, uh, as it were, translucent, this glowing cloud of, uh, uh, a pillar of cloud, and then by night, in the darkness, the light would shine through, and it would appear more as a pillar of fire. But at any rate, there is only one of these in all of history. There is only one God who ever manifested himself thusly. And you trace the history of the glory call. Let me do it for you real quickly. You remember that through a marvelous set of circumstances... Uh, Israel was delivered from, from Egypt, matter of fact, through a series of ten plagues. And after the tenth plague, they were not only allowed to leave, they were thrust out of the land. And as they went, they, it was necessary for them to turn south toward the Sinai, because God had told Moses to meet them there, to meet him there. And they, their natural tendency would have been to turn north toward Canaan. And so God sends this marvelous cloud in Exodus 13, which goes before them. And that cloud leads them, first of all, into a blind canyon. And uh, the reason he does that, by the way, and i like to enlarge on this, we don't have time, is because God wanted to glorify himself in Pharaoh. And so he takes them into this blind canyon with the Red Sea before them and, and ob obstacles on both sides. And uh, uh, Pharaoh hears about this and decides to send his army, remember. And remember, it was the glory cloud which descended upon that army. As Pharaoh's army attacked the Israelites, the glory cloud came and separated itself, uh, I'm sorry, placed itself between the Israelites and the army. And uh, it gave light on one side that th so that through the night the Israelites could pass through that opening in the Red Sea, and it gave cloudiness and darkness 
to the, uh, to the Egyptians so that they couldn't see what to do and they couldn't pursue the Israelites. So it was that glory cloud that was very, very operative in the deliverance to the Red Sea. And then the glory cloud led them down to Sinai. And the glory cloud, the Bible says that the glory cloud settled on the top of Mount Sinai. And there was all of this, uh, this lightning and these flashes of light and this rumbling and so on. And God spoke audibly out of the glory cloud and spoke aloud the Ten Commandments. And then invited Israel to come up and they said, nothing doing, we'll send Moses. And so Moses ascended into that glory cloud. And after 40 days he came down, he went back up for another 40 days after dealing with Israel, came down and his face glowed so from being in the presence of that glory cloud, his actual face glowed. Remember that? So they had to cover his face. People couldn't look upon his face. And, uh, and then God gave them instructions on how to build a throne room. And they built that throne room, we know of as a tabernacle, and that glory cloud left the, the tops of Mount Sinai and came down and inhabited the tabernacle. Took, God took up his throne in the midst of Israel, right? And now every time God would direct the nation by going up, it would be a signal for them to leave, that is, to pack up the tabernacle and travel. And then when the glory cloud would settle in, they would rebuild the tab- reassemble the tabernacle, and the glory cloud would take up its, its position there. And throughout Israel's history, uh, the glory cloud was this marvelous manifestation that God was in the midst of Israel. And not only in the midst, but he was directing. You could approach the glory cloud with certain apparatus, and, and God would, would, would give you revelation. God would speak to you. There were times when, uh, for instance, Moses was challenged by, by Korah. Remember that? And uh, uh, Korah was swallowed up by the earth, and his... Fire fell from heaven upon his cohorts, but the people of Israel were angry over this. And the Bible says that the, remember I told you this, you have this pillar of fire enveloped in this cloud, and briefly the, uh, the, the uh, cloud parted, and this marvelous light shot forth and, uh, you know, rebuked the people and drove them back who were actually intent on killing Moses. So there, the, the, my point is that the glory cloud, and I don't mean to suggest, and I, I think you understand this, that the glory cloud was God. Uh, but the glory cloud was the covenant, the, the physical, the marvelous physical manifestation of God's covenant presence in the midst of, uh, of Israel. And, and, and he, he operated through that glory cloud. That is, he sometimes actually physically ministered to Israel and led Israel by means of that glory cloud. It was when the Ark of the Covenant was taken into battle and the... Philistines captured the ark and went up to Shiloh and destroyed the tabernacle that that woman whose husband had died in the battle gave birth to a child and named him Echavod, which is the glory has departed. No glory. Chavod has gone. And for a time, God's glory was absent. But I, uh, I don't want to... Suffice it to say that this glory cloud, and I, I, the reason I go through it is because I want you to see that this glory cloud was the means by which God put himself on display and demonstrated physically, and that's all important to the concept of glory. That's all important. I'll come to that in a minute. He demonstrated physically his presence in the midst of Israel and the fact that Israel's relationship to her God was entirely distinct from any other nation's relationship to its pantheon of gods. God ministered to Israel through the glory and he put himself on display through the glory cloud. By the way, in Ezekiel 8, 9, and 10, you have the record of the departure of the glory cloud. As the glory cloud, by reason of the fact that Israel had totally abandoned her covenant relationship, the glory cloud departs. And then you go to Ezekiel 43. A lot of people overlook this, but in Ezekiel 43, you have the description of the return of the glory cloud. As the glory cloud in the millennium, someday as we live in, in uh, that millennial state and a temple, a literal temple is built in Jerusalem, the glory cloud is going to return. Now, I took you to Exodus 33. Look at Exodus 33 and verse 16, if you will. Now, this is Moses rejoicing over the, the ministry of this glory cloud. And he says in verse 16, For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not that thou goest with us? That's a, that's a reference to the glory cloud. God actually is going with them and ministering to them in the person, if you don't mind, of this glory cloud. And then he says, so shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are, that are upon the face of the earth. In other words, we have this distinction 
we have this that sets us apart from anybody else, that the glory cloud ministers to us. We have God in our midst in the person of the glory cloud. So throughout the Old Testament, you have this marvelous phenomenon. And by the way, when the, uh, when the Jews returned from Babylon, they bemoaned the fact that there were five things that they were without. And the first one is the glory cloud. They came back and there was no glory cloud. I think that's a very important part of what's going on in the restoration narrative in, in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. But I take too much time. Here's the point. If I've lost you, come back to me. My point is simply this. That in the Old Testament, glory, the glory of God is that which renders him special, distinct from all others uh, who claim to be God. That which makes God distinct. That which, which uh, and, and, and not only that which makes him distinct, but that which visibly demonstrates his distinction. And so the glory of God is God's special distinction put on display for rational beings, men and angels. All right, so what is the glory of God? It is that special distinction of God. God, there is but one God. God sets himself apart. God demonstrates that he alone is God, and he puts that on display. In the Old Testament, the most characteristic way he did it was by means of this marvelous glory cloud. All right, so the basic idea then of glory is weight or significance. It comes to mean that special honor or distinction which is visibly present in an individual. With God, his glory is put on display in all the universe. All right, now, that's what we mean then. Does that make sense to you? That's what we mean when we talk about it. That's why I say the definition of God's glory. All right, let me go then to the demand of God's glory, if you don't mind, and... What I mean by that is I think we need to understand, and I think it is a besetting sin of the world at large, but even more frighteningly, it is a besetting sin of evangelical Christianity today to view the world and even our own lives and so on very anthropocentrically, to put ourselves, man, or our, our, ourselves at the center of our universe as opposed to viewing the God, the, the universe, what uh, theologian way which theologians call theocentrically, putting God at the center of the universe. That's why I take it back to Isaiah 48. I won't go there, but Isaiah says, uh, God says through Isaiah, I will not share my glory with another. What is the chief end of man? Remember the uh, shorter uh, Westminster Catechism? The chief end of man, you know, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, I believe that those two are inseparable. You will not enjoy God. You will not enjoy his goodness unless you know what it is to glorify him. There is a perhaps apocryphal story, you hear it all the time, about the little boy who was reciting his catechism. And he was asked, what is the chief end of man? And he said, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to annoy him forever. And uh, sometimes that may be the way we live ourselves, you know, our lives out. But... Uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, the catechism said, but I think beyond the, 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 the catechism, we need to understand that God's chief end in creation and in all that he does is nothing outside of himself. God's chief end, the purpose for which God called the universe into existence, and the purpose for which God orders the events of the universe is to glorify himself. I think I've told you before, most of the virtues which are enjoined upon us, we also find in God. I personally believe that one virtue which God does not possess and does not claim to possess, and one human virtue which would be entirely inappropriate to God, is humility. God is not humble in the sense that we are creatures. And it is, it is, it is terribly wicked, and it, is, it, 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 is, it sets the whole moral universe on its ear, for us to long to be to, to put ourselves at the center of the universe and, and for us to long for life to be lived out with ourselves as the chief end. God is not a creature. He is the creator. And he called this world into existence to glorify himself. He will not share his glory with another. And as I say, he, he works history out in such a way as to glorify himself. Now, I think, I just want to spend a couple of minutes here uh, working our way through I, what I would, would, would suggest 
is the one time in, in, in human history, in the Old Testament at least, the one time in Old Testament history when the name of God was in the, the greatest danger, when it was in the greatest jeopardy. And it is intriguing to me, and this is what I want to help you to see, how that God protected his name and, if you don't mind, his glory, how he brought glory out of a situation that from every, you know, from every, from every human perspective seemed almost certain to bring disreverence to his name. And what I have in mind is the, is the Babylonian exile. That's what, go back to uh, Isaiah 45, if you will. I'm going to take you to several scriptures, and let me, let me set this up for you here. I, my point is simply this, that, and I, again, many of you have heard me dilate on this before when we go through survey and so on, but let me just, this remind you, that in the, in the ancient uh, world, it was, it was just an a priori assumption. You didn't have to reason to this. It was just a presupposition of, of life that uh, there were gods who ordered the events of every nation. And therefore, when one nation went to battle against another nation, like I say, if this is one nation over here on this side, and this is a, na- a nation over on this side, you have your pantheon of gods, you have your pantheon of gods. If these two nations go to war and this nation is victorious, there is simply no other conclusion to which we can possibly come other than this, that this nation's gods are more powerful than this nation's gods. You were victorious, so your, nation, your, your gods are more powerful. Now, given the, the, the polytheistic mentality and so on, it may be that your gods can go wherever, you know, to this uh, celestial gym somewhere and muscle up a little bit, maybe, and next time, maybe your gods will be victorious. I mean, it's not, a, it's not maybe, maybe it was, uh, remember the, the Syrians, who when they were defeated by the Israelites, they said, oh, well, don't you know, their gods are gods of the hills and our gods are gods of the valleys, and if we get them down the valleys, we'd defeat them. See? So you have this notion that maybe some different venue would help your gods. But the point is that if, in fact, this nation is victorious over this nation. It demonstrates that this nation has greater God. Well, now that presented, and that, that's, a, that's just a universal given in the ancient world. Well, now, God was very, very interested in putting his name on display to all the nations in the Old Testament. He did that through Israel. But by reason of Israel's wickedness, God was faced, if you don't mind, uh, sort of an anthropomorphic way of expressing it, God was faced with a serious dilemma. Because on the one hand, he had to punish Israel. He had to punish the nation of Israel. And he had promised, clear back in Deuteronomy 28, that if Israel fell into wickedness, he was going to punish her by allowing another nation to destroy her. But in the very doing of that, God's name is horribly jeopardized. Because it's going to be the automatic conclusion of all onlookers, which is virtually the entire world, that if Babylon, which serves a pantheon headed by a god bell, if Babylon destroys Judah, what have we concluded? What has been demonstrated beyond any purview, or beyond any peradventure? Simply this, that Babylon's gods are more powerful than the gods of Israel, or the god of Israel in this case. And... Yahweh is clearly cognizant of that. And what I want you to see, and this all under the heading of the demand of God's glory, is how that through a number of marvelous ways that really we don't have time to enumerate all of them, but I think this is a theme. As a matter of fact, I think this is the essence of the book of Daniel. I think the book of Daniel, we so often go to it looking for hints about eschatology that we miss what's really going on in, in, in Daniel. Daniel is the chronicle of God protecting his own name at a time when, uh, when, when his name was in serious jeopardy of being disreverenced. But in a number of ways, providential and supernatural, God intervenes in such a way as to protect his name at this time in human history when his name might easily have been disreverenced and, and his glory would have been jeopardized. Now, and, and there are a number of ways. Look at Isaiah. Again, I want to take you to Isaiah 44 and verse 28, actually, if you will. Isaiah 44 and verse 28 this is a remarkable passage, and there's much we could say about it. Again, it's in the midst of this context where Isaiah is contrasting Yahweh, the God of heaven, who actually can do things, to the miserable, man-made, fictitious gods of the pagan nations. And as demonstration of a God who can actually do things, and do things that man can't do, do things for which there is no explanation other than that 
a supernatural, a real God is involved here. God names the deliverer who will allow the Jews to return from Babylon. He names him as Cyrus. One of the most remarkable passages in Isaiah. Isaiah 44, verse 28, begins the section that saith of Cyrus, He is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Verse 40, uh, chapter 45, verse 1. Thus saith Yahweh to his anointed, to Cyrus. By the way, you know what the word anointed is? How that's usually translated? Anybody? That's Messiah. And the idea is God has has chosen, uh, now not that Cyrus is the Messiah, but he is someone whom God has chosen to a special responsibility and anointed to that position. And uh, he says, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, I will loosen the loins of kings. Now, Cyrus was a mighty conqueror, folks. And, and the point is that to the, to the, to the uh, naturalist, uh, that, that is, to the uh, onlooker, to the man who has no eye for what's going on, no heart for what's going on spiritually, he would just say, my, Cyrus, the king of Persia, was a great conqueror. And he just swept kings before him, and he threw out the Babylonian empire and so on. But God says he did it because I helped him. I held his hand. I subdued nations. I loosed the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I'll go before thee and make the crooked places straight, God says. I'll, he's speaking to Cyrus here, will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut and sunder the bars of iron. And I'll give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret place. That is, I'll let you go in and loot these cities and carry off the, the, the treasures that they have hidden in their secret caches that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name. Now, do you understand? This is about 150 years before Cyrus was even born. This was a time Isaiah ministered when a time when Babylon ruled the entire eastern Mediterranean world. And again, it seemed like they would rule forever. And now he names a man who will be king of a, a little no account, you know, of, of, of a kingdom, which is at this point, when Isaiah wrote a little no account kingdom, and he says, I'll call you by your name. And he says, I, the Lord, which call thee by the name, am God of Israel. Then he says in verse 4, For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast no, not known me. I am the Lord. There is none else. There is no God beside me. If you don't mind, God, you know what he's doing here? He's showing off. That's what he's doing. He's saying, no, no other God could do this. Watch what I can do. I will name the man who will allow you to return. And you go to Ezra chapter 1 and you have the decree of Cyrus, which fulfills this prophecy right here. As a matter of fact, uh, again, I could dilate on this at length, I won't do it, but even in Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah, who also lived before Israel was carried into captivity, prophesied the precise number of years they would be in captivity. You'll be in captivity for 70 years. And again, you go to Ezra chapter 1 and the historical decree, which was written by this man Cyrus, God says that he did it in order that might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah said it would be 70 years, and in the providence of God, God raised up uh, Cyrus. Cyrus had a policy we call repatriation, allowing people to go back, and see, so he very magnanimously allowed the Jews to return. But all this in perfect fulfillment of God's prophecy. Now, the point is, God has not taken his eye off of Israel. God is demonstrating that even though it would seem that he has not been able to protect Israel, and even though by reason of the fact that Israel has, has fallen uh, a victim to a, to a marauding army, that of the Babylonians, God is still in charge. Now you have a remarkable, go over to Daniel, if you will, jump back to Daniel. And I think as far as, I told you before, that the Old Testament concept of glory involves not only special character or distinction, but also visible manifestation of that. How did God manifest to men the fact that he was in charge? Well, I think the answer in one word is the man Daniel. And I don't have time to do it. I plan to take more time. But let me just say very quickly, I hope you're, you see where I'm taking you. All I'm trying to say is this, that God promises that he will not allow his name to be defamed. He will not sacrifice his glory. He will not give his glory, glory that rightly belongs to him, to another. There was a time in Old Testament history where there was serious danger of just that happening. And so God moved in. And God m moved mightily to, 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 to protect his name. 
And one of the most strategic things he did was raise up a young man by the name of Daniel. I think we all respect this young man, Daniel, but let's just think about him. You remember, Old Testament survey students, I hope this is second nature to you, that you had these three times when Jews were carried off from Jerusalem. There was a time in 606 when Nebuchadnezzar came and laid siege to the city and planned on capturing the city. At that time, Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonian was not king. His father was king back in Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. In the midst of that siege, word came to him that his father had died. And therefore, it was imperative that he, Nebuchadnezzar, hustle back to Babylon to secure his throne. Well, in order to, to sort of handcuff the Jews, he took some of the young men, some of the princes, some of the royal young men, back with him as sort of hostages and as trainees. And among them was a young man by the name of Daniel. Now, that's important. Because Daniel is going to be taken back to Babylon about ten years before the great population is going to be carried off, right? So now Daniel's back in Babylon. He's in training. You know the story. Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, night after night, has a dream. He doesn't forget the dream. He just uh, wants to, uh, a lot of people teach that he forgot the dream because he says the thing has gone from me. But the thing is a decree. And uh, actually, he's, he doesn't trust his wise men, and he really, this is a dream from God. This, is, this isn't some strange, you know, nocturnal meandering of the subconscious that you and I, subconscious that we, you and I uh, experience. This is a real dream. This is revelation. And he has it night after night that troubles him so that he calls his wise men, and he says, listen, I don't want some cockamamie invention. I want you to tell me what this dream means, and you claim to have contact with the gods, so I'll put you to the test. If you really got contact with the gods, you ought to be able to tell me not only the interpretation, but the dream. So tell me both. Tell me both the dream and the interpretation. And the wise men say, Nebuchadnezzar, read the book. Read the rule book. You tell us the dream, we tell you the interpretation. That's the way it works. And he says, nothing new. As a matter of fact, if you don't tell me both the dream and the interpretation, I'm going to cut you into little pieces and make your houses dunghills which always seems to me wouldn't have made that much difference after he cut me in little pieces. But at any rate, uh, do what you want to the real estate. But uh, but the point is that, you know, they, they, they throw up their hands. They, they say, we can't do it. There's no way we can do it. And they're so being marched off to be executed. And word gets to Daniel. And Daniel comes to Nebuchadnezzar and says, let me check with my God, the God of heaven, and see if he can help me. And God does. And, of course, he reveals this mighty dream of an image made of four different metals and so on. And, and Daniel goes in and reveals this. And Nebuchadnezzar is just blown away. He can't believe. Here's someone. As a matter of fact, look at Daniel 2 and verse uh, 47. Here is, here is Nebuchadnezzar's. I, I, I think Nebuchadnezzar is really an intriguing individual. But Daniel 2 and verse 47, I've got to hurry. Nebuchadnezzar, after the king uh, has the... Uh, uh, dream revealed to him. And by the way, by the way, could I tell you something before you read that? It's so interesting that in every one of these little little vignettes that we have in Daniel, God always so contrives what happens that before God flexes his muscles, you always have some sort of a deliberate confession that the rest of the gods can't do it. In other words, before this happens, the wise men had come in and they'd said, we can't do that. Our gods can't do that. Nobody can do that except somebody who actually lives with the gods. In comes Daniel. My God can do that. Watch this. And God shows off again. And again, Daniel 2.47, the king answered and he said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods, a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal his secrets. Now, the point is, folks, understand that this is immediately in the context where Babylon is in the process of destroying Judah. And the whole world could think, well, Babylon's gods are a lot stronger than, than Israel's gods. And so God sets up this situation where the whole pantheon of Babylon's gods acknowledge their inability. Daniel walks in and his God, the God of Israel, does what's demanded. Daniel chapter 3, you know the story of the fiery furnace. I won't stop there, save to say uh, well, two things. Number one, a lot of people struggle over the question, why wasn't Daniel there? Are you familiar with that question? You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down. Daniel never shows up. I don't think there's any question why Daniel wasn't there. Daniel wasn't there because Nebuchadnezzar wanted everybody to bow down, and he knew good and well Daniel wouldn't bow down. He made Daniel stay home. We're going to have a, we're going to have a great conclave here, and I'm going to make everybody swear allegiance to me and my gods. And Daniel, I know you're not going to have anything to do with this, and you just be an embarrassment to me, so you stay home. And uh, But he didn't realize that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego also would not bow down. 
But the point is, you remember he says at the time, you hear this little orchestra and so on, everybody bow down. There stand Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're in the great uh, Valley of Dura, and uh, wherever in the world that is. And, uh, but the point is, he, and then, then Nebuchadnezzar is just beside himself with rage, and he calls those three men up. And now understand, folks, understand the way. I want you to see the way the Lord has, if you don't mind, uh, with all this morning references, I guess this is appropriate, choreographed this situation. Because uh, what's going on here is this. That, that Daniel, I'm sorry, Nebuchadnezzar, and I believe personally that this is in the context of the great influx. He knows he's about to bring in about 10,000 Jews. He knows from Daniel that these Jews are not going to be very, very warm to the idea of, of worshiping his gods. And so he wants to just sort of put himself on record so he gets everybody in his government. Now understand it, this is not done in a closet somewhere. Nebuchadnezzar has called everybody in his government, has them stretched out in this marvelous, on this broad plain, has this image that he has built to honor himself and his gods, and he says, now, I want everybody to bow down. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego won't do it. He calls them up. He's in a fit of rage, and he says, now, listen, I'm going to give you one more chance. When you hear that orchestra, you better bow down. And if you don't, remember what he said? You, I'd like to know what God it is that can deliver you. Well, God would just like to show you what God it is that could deliver him. And so you got this situation where in front of everybody, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown in the fiery, they, they wander around, evidently there's another personage there with them, be it Jesus or an angel and so on, and they come out totally unscathed. What do you suppose those people went home talking about? All throughout the entire Babylonish kingdom, what do you suppose they wanted to tell everybody they saw? What this marvelous God had done. You see what God's doing here to protect his name? And then Daniel chapter 4, which is actually where I'm headed here, and you forgive me for banging my gums, but Daniel chapter 4. And let me say, Daniel 4, one of my, honest to goodness, Daniel 4 is, is, is one of my favorite passages in all the Old Testament. It just thrills uh, me every time I get into it. The interesting thing about Daniel 4 is it's, it's not written by Daniel. It's written by Nebuchadnezzar. If you go, what, what happened is this. Nebuchadnezzar, late in his life, very late in his life, went off and, and, and had a tremendous campaign in Egypt. And he came back and he was so proud of himself. And Nebuchadnezzar had a, had a uh, you know, his, his, the most important man in Nebuchadnezzar's government was Daniel. And Nebuchadnezzar came back and he was so proud of himself that uh, Daniel came to him. As a matter of fact, God gave him a dream. And in this dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw this tree that was cut down at its height and so on. And, and he was, he was frightened by it, and he, he called Daniel in. He told Daniel about the dream. And Daniel said, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, would to God this dream had been given to your worst enemy. This ain't good news at all. And he says, what this dream is saying is that God will not tolerate your prideful spirit, and if you don't learn to give him the glory, God's going to punish you. Well, Nebuchadnezzar worked at it, but he went off evidently to Tyre, captured the, captured the very, very difficult island city of Tyre came home and stood on the, on the battlements of the city one night and looked over that vast, beautiful, wonderful city of Babylon, and he stuck his chest out and he said, Is not this mighty Babylon, which I have built by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? And before the words were out of his mouth, remember, he fell down and became a madman. And for seven years, he functioned as an absolute madman. As a matter of fact, he, he behaved like an animal, and uh, they had to keep him out in a pasture somewhere. And uh, for, for seven years, he was a madman. And, by the way, a lot of critics attack that. And they say, that couldn't be. How could possibly the empire subsist for seven years without the emperor? This is conjecture. I think it's sanctified conjecture, personally. But I, I think the answer is Daniel. And you just think about that. You think about how God is protecting his name in that the empire itself is governed for seven years by Daniel by a prophet of these Jews who had been carried captive. But at any rate, coming back to it, the point is that after seven years, Nebuchadnezzar repented and his reason returned to him. You know what he did? And by the way, personally, I tend to think you and I are going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. I am anyway, but no. I make it hard on you. I don't want to assume anything. But, uh, but the point is, I think Nebuchadnezzar is going to be in heaven. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Um, because Nebuchadnezzar wrote Daniel 4. He was under no political obligation to do this, but this is what I want you to catch. With this, I'm about to Nebuchadnezzar sat down, and look at Daniel 4 and verse 1. 
It says, Nebuchadnezzar the king, unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. I thought it good, and notice the first person, this is Nebuchadnezzar writing, I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me, how great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, is dead, and his dominion is from generation to generation. Folks, Daniel 4 is a decree. It was issued by Nebuchadnezzar after he re- uh, uh, recovered from his madness. Do you understand that in this time, when a, when a king or an emperor issued a decree, there was a very complex and careful system set up by which every single person in the empire, that's the whole Babylonian empire, was obligated to sit and listen to that decree. And there would be runners dispatched to every little tiny village. There would be notices posted that on such and such a time, at such and such a place, an official representative of the emperor would read a decree, and everybody in the entire kingdom had to sit and listen to Daniel 4. And what Daniel 4 is, is a testimony of Nebuchadnezzar, how I tried to take the credit for this vast empire, and the God of heaven rebuked me and made me a madman for seven years. And it wasn't until I was willing to give him the credit for what's going on here that my sanity returned to me. And when it did, I sat down, and this is what I wrote. And look at Daniel 4 and verse 34. At the end of the days, and I want you to see, again, I hope you understand, I want you to see this in the context of God defending his name. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, mine understanding returned unto me. I blessed the Most High, I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, his kingdom is from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth, and that's actually broader than that, the cosmos, are reputed as nothing. I believe Nebuchadnezzar is saying all these gods that claim to be gods are nothing. But God alone, Yahweh, doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? At the same time, my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness return, and so on. And verse 37, he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. Now every single ear in the kingdom had to sit and listen to that. And I believe that largely through Daniel and through this man, Nebuchadnezzar, God protected himself. Now, my point with all that is simply this, and there's much more I wanted to say. matter of fact, let me say two things. Number one, folks, this is the principle I'm headed for. It took me a long time to get there. And that is, God is not going to be cheated. God is going to extract his glory from the universe. I mean, microcosm, I'm sorry, macrocosm, even the universe at large. See, by the way, that's why... I cherish, let me tell you, that's why I cherish dispensationalism, a word which has fallen into some disrepute. But you know what dispensationalism says? It says that there is a progress of revelation, that we are moving somewhere, that human history is taking us somewhere. And do you realize that, we've been singing about it here this, this, this morning, do you realize that within human history... There is going to be a time of a thousand years when, praise God, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to what? To the glory of God the Father. God is going to put his glory on display. And all, you know, some people say, well, you know, dispensationalists, they believe that the world's just going to get worse and worse and worse and there's nothing we can do about it, so there's no use trying. Balderdash, absolutely in a pig's eye. You don't understand anything. Listen, you don't understand anything about dispensation. If you don't understand that what it's teaching is that we are moving inexorably, and and I have the absolute, the the, the most unfettered uh, lack of confidence in man's ability to bring anything out of history. But I have the most unfettered confidence in the ability of an all-wise, all-powerful God to, in spite of all the machinations of wicked men, to put himself on display within human history. And we are going to live in an age when righteousness covers this earth as water covers the sea, and when there is a king who reigns in absolute power and righteousness from a throne in Jerusalem, and we bow the knee and every tongue confesses that he is just what he claimed to be, 
and God's glory is put on display. Macro, I mean, in the in, in the course of the universe, God is going to extract His glory from this universe. But I'll tell you something: microcosmically, in your life, God is going to extract His glory from your life. You know, in the Old Testament, you have this theocratic principle I set before you: a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you obey, a curse if you disobey. And there are two sides to God's character. Behold the goodness and the severity of God. You know, in Romans chapter 12, when Paul says, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God. You know, here's something profound. Write this down. Romans 12 comes right after Romans 11. Now, you know, everybody, everybody, everybody who goes to that verse, Romans 12, they say, well, what he's talking about is Romans 1 to 9, which is the outline of salvation. No, he's not. He's talking, he has just said in Romans 9 to 11, Paul has just carefully outlined how that God has wrought with Israel so that when Israel was obedient, God put on display the positive character side of his character, if you don't mind. But when there's another side to God's character, God hates sin and God knows how to punish sin and God loves to show off how much he hates sin. And when we, and, and the whole point of Paul is, don't Live your life in such a way that in order to extract his glory from your life, God has to show, put on display his justice and his hatred of sin. Put your life on the altar so that God can put on display in your life his goodness and his charity. And my point is simply this. God will extract his glory from your life. And you are well advised to so live your life that God can show off his goodness. You know, Jesus said, and this is my third point, I haven't got time for it, the delights of God's glory. It is a shame that we so often approach life as if living for God and living our lives out to put him on display in our lives will somehow be an odium, that it will rob us. You know, Jesus said this, Blessed is the man who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. Why? For he shall be... Remember? Amen. Ill, satisfied. You want to be fulfilled? You want to be satisfied? You want your heart's longings to be met, met and so on? Hunger and thirst after a right relationship with God. Make it the center of your life to put God on display. Make it the purpose, the all-pervading purpose of your life to live obediently, to live in such a way that you honor the God of Scripture, that men, that's why I said before, what is it to glorify God? It is to so live that men and women with whom you come in contact have a higher regard, appreciate more highly the God whom you serve than they ever could have if they'd never met you. Live your life out that, that way. You have the promise of God, the promise of His Son. You'll be filled. Let's have a word of prayer. We'll be filled.